0: You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to The Revealing Retina, presented by the American Retina Foundation, the charitable arm of the ASRS, the American Society of Retina Specialists. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Levitt, Chairman of the American Retina Foundation, and joining me is Dr. Albert Edwards. Dr. Edwards obtained his PhD in cell biology and his MD in ophthalmology residency at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. He did a two-year fellowship in vitreoretinal disease and in ophthalmic genetics at the KCI Institute at Oregon Health Sciences University. And following eight years in Dallas as an assistant professor in ophthalmology at Southwestern Medical Center, he is now an associate professor and senior associate consultant in the Department of Ophthalmology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He specializes in the genetics of retinal disease, and today we are going to talk about the genetics of age-related macular degeneration. Welcome to The Revealing Retina, Dr. Edwards. Thank you, Roy. In the past on this show, we've discussed the different types of AMD, including the more common dry type, the acute visually debilitating wet type, and we also talked about some of the more common treatments. At this point, I'd like for you to give us your take on the current state of AMD, and what part genotyping is playing in this ocular disease?
1: Well, I, I look at AMD as a common, complex trait, meaning it is a disease that develops late in life and that has multiple risks, including environmental exposures, demographic exposures, and genetic risk. And I, I view AMD as a maculopathy, as a disease in which there are abnormal deposits that form underneath the retina, And in some patients, these deposits become severe enough or there are additional risks that lead them to develop complications such as death of the retina or geographic atrophy where the retina dies and patients get these defects in their vision, or wet disease where abnormal blood vessels grow in and leak fluid and bleed. If you look at the natural history of the disease, you look at animal models, I think that is a, a good way of thinking about macular degeneration.
0: These deposits that you mentioned, how do they affect the survival of the retinal cells?
1: Well, the deposits initially have fairly minimal impact on visual and function. They're composed of lipids, inflammatory proteins, such as activated complement molecules, beta-amyloid, and a variety of proteins that respond to, to the inflammatory state, such as vimentin, and also a, a variety of debris, apparently ex- extruded from RPE cells, such as undigestible byproducts of the visual cycle. These deposits begin to build up slowly over time in many patients, and the visual effect tends to be a little bit of decrease in in dark adaptation or difficulty seeing at night or, or especially difficulty transitioning from a bright room into, say, a dark room, for example, going into a movie theater. And at some point, patients begin to lose some of the photoreceptor cells. That happens normally during life, but the rate of loss goes up. And if the deposits get severe enough, they can get thick enough in order to prevent the nutrients and oxygen coming from the bloodstream to get to the pigment layer under the retina and the retina itself. And that can lead to this fairly advanced focal atrophy of cells called geographic
0: atrophy. Now, these uh, deposits that occur, are they naturally occurring but just in excess in these patients?
1: That's a good question. In animal models... For example, in mice, there are age-related changes in the retina, which genes are involved in leukocyte extravasation or the migration of leukocytes out of blood vessels into the eye, and genes that are involved in complement act- activation and, and other genes are, are upregulated as a function of age in mice, and that translates into to some deposition of complement proteins and buildup of, of a limited amount of deposits. I don't know if that's normal. In humans, we don't really know the answer to that question yet. What, what we do know is that in patients who have certain behaviors, such as smoking or eating a high-fat diet or, or being obese, for example, and not exercising, so patients who fit into that category epidemiologically and patients who have genetic risks, are much more likely to have a, an extensive buildup of these deposits. So I, I would hesitate to say that the buildup is normal, but it's certainly common. And those patients in general don't get disease. It's patients who have a large amount of the buildup of deposits that get disease.
0: And this is related to their genome?
1: Yes, it is. There are a number of genetic risks that are very important in increasing the chance of getting macular degeneration. The first that was discovered was reported in 2005, and and that was a variation or group of variations in the complement factor H gene. Now, complement factor H is a down-regulatory molecule in the complement pathway. It binds to a central enzyme, the C3 convertase, that's responsible for forming the attack that pokes holes in cells and destroys them. And complement factor H serves to down-regulate the activity of that complex and essentially destroy it through three distinct mechanisms. That genetic variation in that locus probably accounts for somewhere between 40 and 50% of the risk of developing AMD and has an odds ratio of about two to three if you have one copy of the risk allele and five to seven if you have two copies of the risk allele. The second locus that was identified is is on chromosome 10 band Q26. and This locus contains three genes in an area that is associated with increasing the risk of macular degeneration. We don't know exactly which variation and which gene exactly causes the disease, but we do know that there's an ancestral segment of DNA that's present in about 25% of Caucasians that results in a three- to four-fold increase in risk if you have one copy and a seven- to ten-fold if you have two copies. Now, because that risk variant is less common, it's only about 25% compared to the complement factor H, which is about 39%. Its overall impact is actually less, even though the odds ratios for a given individual is higher. So we don't know what the function in that region is yet. The next locus that was identified is located in the complement factor C2 and the factor B region. Those are two genes that are right next to each other, and we still haven't been able to determine exactly which gene it is. In fact, there are some reports suggesting that, well, maybe it's another gene that's nearby. And the reason for this is that these regions of the genome, the, the various base pair changes often go along with each other and are inherited as blocks it can be difficult to sort it out. But I would say that that, that that locus is a relatively modest effect compared to the first two. They tend to have odds ratios of 1.5 to 2 for um, a single variant.
0: You're listening to The Revealing Retina on ReachMD160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Roy Levitt, and I'm speaking with Dr. Albert Edwards, and we are discussing the genetic influence on age-related macular degeneration. Now, we were just talking about the genes which are known that affect AMD. At this point, is it practical to do this sort of testing on patients that may have a family risk? Well, I
1: think that it can be done. The question is, what would we do with it? How, how useful would the information? So in addition to those three variants that I mentioned, there's one other in C3, which has a modest odds ratio. So we have these four genetic variants, and so we can stratify or rather we can account for the genetic risk, we can account for the risk of AMD up to about 75 to 80% with these variations that we know about already. Okay, even the ones we don't know exactly what the disease-causing changes are, we can still incorporate those in the model. So we, can, we could, at birth, provide an estimate of lifelong disease risk. And the question would be, would that information lead to a useful change in behavior? And we know that behavioral changes that would reduce the risk of eating macular degeneration, so-called modifiable risk factors. The first of those, and probably most important, is avoidance of smoking. The second is the consumption of fatty fish, such as salmon, tuna, mackerel. That has a protective effect. And then it's other dietary and lifestyle factors that appear to be important, but are are not, for which there's not as extensive evidence, and those are low-fat diet, exercise, eating leafy green vegetables and fruits. You get this picture that there are these people who live a healthy life, eat a healthy diet, are much less likely to get disease than those who don't. And that proportion of the disease risk is probably around 20 to 30%. So the question would be, would would patients change their behavior if they knew that information, given that, that we already recommend, for a variety of reasons, to eat that kind of diet and live that kind of lifestyle? That's an
0: unknown question. Another question I have been thinking about has to do with the ARIDS formula, which is a specific group of vitamins that has been shown to be beneficial in certain patients in reducing the progression of dry age-related macular degeneration. Now, is there any genetic correlation as to who would benefit more from this vitamin supplement regimen?
1: Yes. Interestingly, uh, a recent study suggested that Patients who had the high-risk alleles in the complement factor H locus had a reduced benefit. They still had a benefit, but it was reduced. And it's because of the fairly modest size of the study and the fact that there is no other cohort to replicate that finding in. I would be very cautious about suggesting that patients not take the red supplements because of that finding. One of the unfortunate realities of doing case control studies is that many findings ultimately Proved not to be replicated in subsequent studies. And so although the study was done, ex- is an excellent study, it was done very well, and it's a, it's a valid finding in that study in that group of patients. Whether or not it's going to hold true across, say, the AREDS-2 trial that's going on right now, we don't know. And the effect wasn't large enough to say that we shouldn't treat these patients. And also, we haven't looked at all the other genetic variants to see how that factors out. So I, I would say that that is a very exciting and interesting result. It gives us the, the suggestion that someday we may be able to tailor therapy to individual patients. But right now, we don't know how to do that.
0: If you had a patient that came to your office and he was between 50 and 60 years old, no visual symptoms, had a few derusin. That were diagnosed, and some suspicion of the possibility of dry AMD was there. Would you suggest this individual with no real family history to have genetic testing?
1: I personally would not. I would suggest that the patient modify his exposures. And the reason for that is that we don't yet know. That if we take this patient you described with, say, just almost early macular degeneration, it's almost there. It's just several hard drusen, maybe 10 or 15. Just not enough to call it, but it's very suspicious. Okay, And those are the people in the Beaver Dam study that were most likely to go on to have AMD 10 years later. So if we were to take that person and divide them into two categories, say a high genetic risk and a low genetic risk, my question would be would I tell those patients anything differently? And I think the answer today would be no. Maybe 10 years from now, 5 years from now, after we do some prospective studies based on the ongoing genetic and proteomic work, It may be that we could tell those patients to do something differently, but but today I would tell them exactly the same
0: thing. Interesting. I'd like to talk about this further, but our time is up. Dr. Albert Edwards, I'd like to thank you for speaking with us about the genetic aspect of age-related macular degeneration.
1: Thank you, Roy. It was a pleasure.
0: I'm your host, Dr. Roy Levitt, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Revealing Retina, presented by the American Retina Foundation. For more information, please visit us online at americanretina.org. We welcome your questions and comments about this or any other show. Please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at www.reachmd.com. Our new on-demand and our new podcast features will allow you access to our entire program library. Again, thanks for listening.